There's, there's a happy baby in the room. Did you hear that? We like that. So I'm looking at the time and the 45 minutes worth of text I've got. <laughs> I'm funny. You, you think I'm kidding. <laughs> um. <laughs> so before I get started, I want to remind you a little bit um, of last week. We're uh, in the second week of, of the story of Elijah, and last week he was with the widow of Zarephath, and he was, um, and we talked about how God can cross boundaries that we set up or that, or that the world sets up, that God can cross any boundary that he's not bound by our boundaries. So the widow of Zarephath was from a different culture than the Israelites, and so God crossed that boundary to interrupt her, uh, she was ready to die at the beginning of the story and God provided life. So he interrupted that death with life across a cultural boundary. She also lived in a different country. So he crossed a territorial boundary. And then later in the story, her son died and he crossed that boundary, an existential boundary and brought life into that situation. That there are no boundaries that we can set up or, or, or that we can cause that God can't cross should he want to. That's the first thing I want you to remember. And the second thing is, is that he's crossing those boundaries to interrupt our lives, we think. We often think that, but he's interrupting our slow and, and sort of downgrading presence into, into life. It's okay. <laughs> no, 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 don't be. I, I just want you to just, I'm going to take a little moment here, okay? Just, the pastor loves it. <laughs> and so um, the second thing I want to say today is that as we go into Scripture, sometimes I was talking with Linda, and I don't know where Linda went, but Linda was saying that sometimes she reads texts and she writes these frowny faces or she makes faces in her Bible because it's a difficult text, and she goes, uh, what do I do with that? Well, today is one of those texts, and we're not going to shy away from them. We're going to go into them and discuss it a little bit. But what I'm going to do here is I'm going to read, and I'm on page 317 of the Red Pew Bible, if you want to follow along. And I'm doing that because you don't have to if you don't want to, but 1 Kings 18 is a long chapter, and I'm going to read it, and I'll stop every so often and discuss the topic, and then we'll go back into it and read some more, and we'll discuss what's going on, um, just because I'm trying to um, tailor the sermon to the 15 minutes I've got. <laughs> so here we go. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. That's the third year of a famine. There has been no rain in the land for three years. And, and says, go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had called Obadiah, who was over his household. Now Obadiah revered the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel had cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by the fifties in the cave and fed them with bread and water. 
By the way, Obadiah is over the household of the king. And so the queen says, we're going to get rid of those prophets. And Obadiah says, we're going to hide them and I'm going to feed you. Now, whose resources did Obadiah use to feed the prophets in that time? The kings and the queens. So she cut him off, but not really. Because Obadiah provided. I also want you to recognize one little thing here. God is starting the process. God has come to Elijah and said, now go. It is time. I am going to bring rain upon the land. Elijah didn't decide. He didn't set his his egg timer and say, when the egg timer goes off, God's going to come and do this thing. And I'm going to go out there and we're going to talk and we hope he shows up. Elijah is a man of the Lord and he waits and God starts the process and he comes and he says, now go. Anyway, Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land at this at this time to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. And perhaps we'll find grass to save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them and to pass through and Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah went in the other by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And Elijah said to him, It is I. Go and tell your lord or king, Behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, And I want you to know, I want you to remember that if you're Obadiah and you fear the Lord and Elijah is your spiritual leader and he's disappeared for three years and nobody knew why he disappeared except to save his life or whatever, this is what he says. And so I want you to hear that from Obadiah's standpoint. Where have I sinned against you that you would... that you would give your servant to the hand of Ahab to kill me. As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom whether my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he's not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. As soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry whither you I know not, And so when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. The people of God are in distress in this kingdom. Do you hear it? That even if I hear from you and you tell me to do something, I'm worried that the second I do it, you're going to disappear again and he's going to kill me for it because I've false alert, because he searched everywhere. I also want you to see the king of the people of God, and that's the king of Israel, Ahab, has been completely powerless to do several things. One of those things he's been completely powerless to do is to find Elijah. Now, Elijah hasn't really been hiding, but he's been in the home of the widow of Zarephath, who's in the land of his queen. So you'd think of all the places he would have power to find her, that's the place. He also has no power to cause it to rain and he has no power to cause to find a place to feed his animals. He has no power to change anything except to end the life of somebody that he gets mad at. And that's why Obadiah is worried. See, now I need to find my spot. 
And as soon as I have gone from you, okay, I said that. He, he, has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he would kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, It is you, is it you, you troubler of Israel? Now as this text keeps doing this thing, I want you to hear echoes or reverberations throughout the whole biblical text. There was a man once who called somebody a troubler of Israel. That was King Saul. He called two people troubler of Israel. One, he called uh, Goliath the troubler of Israel. And he also called his son Jonathan at a different time the troubler of Israel because he had broken Saul's foolish oath during a battle that nobody should eat. Do you remember this story? Maybe you don't. So I'll just say this. So Saul is fighting a war and he says, nobody in my army eats today until we win. And Jonathan, who was flagging in strength, ate something and then suddenly caused victory to happen. And when victory happened, because he had strength to fight the battle, because he'd eaten food, the king goes, you're the troubler of Israel. And so it's sort of like whenever you watch a Disney movie, and I want you to recognize this, whenever you watch a Disney movie and the villain comes on the scene, there's almost always green in the screen. It's the sign that this is the evil person, right? They've got green on their clothing, the lighting changes, all this stuff. When somebody calls somebody fool, racha, or the troubler of Israel, you should be aware that this is the villain. They're pointing themselves out. And then he said to him, I have not troubled Israel, but you have you and your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of God and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping with two, between two different opinions? The Hebrew is much more explicit than this. It says, how long will you hobble yourselves between two opinions? How long will you cause yourself to limp? Will you do damage to yourself by not, doing, by not choosing between two things? How long will you hobble yourself? Jesus says it different. He says, nobody can serve two masters. You will either love one or hate the other. Or you'll love the second and hate the first. But you're going to pick. But the choice, when you waffle between them, hobbles you. Now, those of you, is there somebody here that knows horses? Hobbling a horse. Really, they love that, don't they? No. Okay, so... I'm just, I don't know horses that well. I know that uh, if you get sent for the key to the fetlock, then you need to know that person's pulling your tail. 
Now, therefore, send and gather. And so Ahab sent them all. And Elijah came near and said, How long will you go limping between two opinions? And if the Lord, the God, Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. Do you know what that means? They can't decide. They've not seen the power of either or they've not attributed the power to God. Now, I want to tell you something. This is a little bit of needed background of the story, and it, and it helps explain all sorts of things in the Bible, but it explains th- what's coming next, and it explains Pentecost in a way that I hope begins to, to take hold in your heart that, that it's not really part of our story, but it's how they heard this story. In the ancient world, when you made an idol or an image of a god, everybody would do this thing, and they would, they would take the image and they would form it in a grove of sacred trees. Now, that sort of sounds like the Garden of Eden. If it talks to me that God built his image in the garden out of dust, but they would, they would go through and they would ritually do things in the ancient world. The pagans and the Jews, they would do this thing before they, before they were told not to make images. They would ritually open the eyes and say, your eyes work now to the little piece of wood covered in stone or whatever it was. And then they would go work on the ears. By the way, do you know some famous guy from the New Testament who went around and fixed eyes that didn't work and ears that didn't work? Do you know something about that? That God was repairing the image, his image in the people. And so he wasn't ritually doing it. He, he was actually doing it. But on the last step of the whole thing, they would call down the fiery spirit or the breath of the God to enliven or fill the idol so that the image of the God would be alive. And then now it wasn't actually the God in their viewpoint. And you could you could destroy the idol and you wouldn't hurt the God. But when you destroyed the idol, you actually said something about how you felt about the God. By the way, that says something about what we do to people, doesn't it? If we're, if humans are the image of God, when we destroy the image of God or we fight against the image of God, it says something about who? The one, how we feel about the one who made that image. And so this, the fiery spirit would come down in this. And so when he says... If the Lord is God, then worship him. And if Baal is, Baal is God, then worship him. The sign that comes soon will tell you who brings life and light and power. So here it is. Let two bowls be given to us and let them choose one bowl for themselves and, and cut it in pieces and lay it in wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by, and the, and the God who answers by fire is God. And so they took the bowl and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning to noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. And there was no voice and there was no one that answered. And they limped about the altar and which they had made. Now, not limped, same word. They hobbled about. They injured themselves. They, they limped. They, they were in a stupor. They did damage to themselves. They hobbled themselves about the altar, yelling out and crying out all day. And, 
And at that, and at noon, Elijah began to mock them, saying, cry aloud for he is a god. Either he is musing or he has gone aside or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and, or maybe he needs to be woke up. That's what this text says. I just want you to know the, the Hebrew is a little more explicit there. At one time, he's, this is uh, Elijah's bathroom humor. Perhaps he's saying, perhaps he's on the bathroom and he needs to be interrupted. Now, just an FYI. If you come into somebody and they don't worship the Lord, mocking them will almost never be the way to convert them. It didn't work here and it won't work there. Let me just say that. The only thing that ever converts somebody from a negative passage to to God's way is love and mercy and the wooing of the Holy Spirit. I think there's something else happening here. And I say, I think, just so you know that this is not in the text, this is what I think. I think that this is a little bit like God hardening Pharaoh's heart in the Exodus. That the the mocking sets the decision to follow Baal in their hearts and they go about it with all the more frenzy. And they start cutting themselves. Because that obviously helps. And they cried aloud and cut themselves with, with their custom with the swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And at midday passed, they raved on until the time of the oblation. But there was no voice and no one answered and no one heeded. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. By the way, I just want you to hear that there was an altar for Baal there and it was in good shape because they had been serving one God, just Baal. They had already decided to ignore God, the Lord of Israel. But before we go any further, I need those two things. There's two altars there. Do you know that this is the people of Israel? Do you know that another name, something we call the people of Israel in the Bible, we call them the people of Israel. God, that the people of God can't serve two masters either. That if you spend your Sundays serving God and then you decide on Monday to serve somebody else, you will choose one and not the other, and that's the way it goes. And the altar will be broken down. And so Elijah took the altar that had been thrown down and 12 stones. According to the number of tribes of Israel, this is a call to remember that they are the people of God, that they are the 12 tribes. This is remember who you are. Even if you get down a dark alley and you're someplace you didn't intend to be, God can call you back and remind you and say, oh, by the way, did you know that you are my treasured possession? that I will cross any boundary for you, that I will go and I will woo and I will seek you out when you're lost and I will call you back. That's what Elijah's doing here. Israel shall be your name, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And on the altar, he built a trench. And about the altar... 
as great as would contain two measures of seed. And he put the wood on the altar and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill full four jars full of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran out about the altar and filled the trench also with altar, with a water. That's a lot of water to set on fire, by the way. Because that's exactly how you start a campfire, isn't it? Don't you go get the wood and store it in the, in the creek next, next to the campsite? Because you want it to burn nice and smoky. And at the time of the offering, the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known that this day thou art God in Israel and that I am your servant. And I have done these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that thou, O Lord God, that your God and that thou hast turned their hearts back to you. Then the fire from the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape, and they seized them. And Elijah took them down to the brook Kishon and killed them there. This is one of those spots that if, that if you want to, you go ahead and put a little frowny face in your, in your text there. What about those 450 prophets? But God, these people are no longer wavering between two opinions. God has crossed a boundary in them to call them back to what they were supposed to be doing. Now, It's one thing to work from the smaller thing where he works on an individual basis in the life of the widow of Zarephath and her son, and he does that. And I want you to hear that he is interested in you in the same way that he's working in the individual life of the widow of Zarephath in the previous chapter. He is also interested in the lives of such a great people as a nation. The one thing that cannot be said about him is that he interacts with, each o- with individuals in the same way, at the same time, or anything. But he's custom. He's one of a kind. He knows who you are. He knows what's convincing proof to you. And he knows what's convincing proof to me. And thank God they're not the same thing. And he knows that. He is not a one-size-fits-all God. He's custom. But he's not just interested in the widow, and he's not just interested in the kingdom. He's interested in all of it. This is his world, and he wants to woo his people back into a spot where they can truly be his image or his representative in the world. So when I say that he comes down in fire and the fiery fiery breath of the God fills the image or enlivens the image, does that make sense when you see the Pentecost story and they're in the room and little flames of fire come and hover over the people? You're supposed to know that the image of God is now fully enlivened in them. Now, does it mean... That, it, that unless somebody holds a match over your head when you come to God, that you don't have the Spirit of God? 
No. What it means is, is that God comes and enlivens his spirit and he's calling us, wooing us into this deeper relationship with him that we would not be in a spot where we're limping and doing damage between two different poles in our life that I have my work life and my church life and causing myself to limp and do damage to me and therefore damage to the image of the God who loves us dearly. There's more to say. I could read more. I am out of time. I've gone 20 I've gone 5 minutes over. I'm sorry about that. But uh like I said there's like 12 verses left. The clock's up here. <laughs> They're all it's a it, you have to come front. We're all doing that. But I want you to know this that as we go out this I'm going to close this up just so you know and then I'm going to pray. I want you to know that if you think that you can separate part of your life out and not let God into that, but you're going to be in charge of this thing and you're going to worship your little, your stuff, your money, your job, your possessions, um, the land, whatever it is, any part of creation, which is the gift of God, instead of the God who made it, he can cross that boundary should he want to, but he's wooing you and asking you to help him, to invite him in. He's not going to make you cross that boundary. He's completely willing to let you live in your bad decisions. Have you experienced that? He's willing to let you live in your bad decisions. Often as a parent saying, please don't do that. No, bad, bad move. I've had this conversation with my own kids. No, um, it's a, I know you have the right to do it. Don't. But he's in this spot, and he's calling us to interrupt our slow demise into life. And so today as you go, may you know this, Lord. Lord Jesus, as we, as we come to you, may we know you. May you fill our lives. May May we be enlivened with your spirit to follow you. May we hear the interruption. May we see that we struggle when we serve two masters. In your precious name, amen.